Well, as I mentioned, we, we've dedicated this Sunday, we're calling it Biblical Sexuality Sunday. We're, we've dedicated it to helping people think through one of the most dominant issues in our society. And that is this ongoing conversation about human sexuality. And I'm gonna state right out of the gates that one of our values as a church is unapologetic preaching. So you've probably heard me say more times than you'd care to hear that we're creatures and creatures don't apologize to other creatures for what the creator has said. We don't do that. We don't play games with the Bible. We don't shave off the corners. We're not, our intention is not to be controversial and our intention is not to be schismatic and our intention is not to ruffle feathers. That's not our goal. We're not drama kings and drama queens here, but the reality is, is that God's word is straight up. And the responsibility of a preacher is to preach it straight out to the people of God. And then you, it's your choice to respond to it as you see fit. But we do affirm the full authority of God's word and on every subject that it addresses. Now the world also has a Bible of sorts, a law code. Their law code is drawn from popularity votes, from polls, from party politics. Every society has a law code from which it decides what's right and wrong. Secularism is not morally neutral. If you listen to my podcast this week, I think I built a pretty solid argument that secularism is a small R religion. It's not morally neutral. And we see increasingly in the Canadian state in particular, the government pontificating on matters of morality. So we wanna make sure that in response to that, our message is not based upon trendy ideologies or what's politically apropos, but rather based upon God's word. So I want to spend some time in Hebrews chapter 13, verse four, it's just one verse, and help us to see God's plan for us in the area of sexuality. But before we go there, I wanna go over to Genesis chapter one, the very first chapter of the Bible and, and make some observations for you. So the big idea of our time in the word is going to be this, that we honor God's design for sexuality and we will be judged for obeying it or disobeying it. I hope you're comfortable with that because that's what we're gonna see in the text. But let's first go to Genesis chapter one, verses 26 and 27. And the reason why I wanted to take us there is I, I want you to understand or be reminded that our view of human sexuality is not actually distinctly Christian. It's transcultural, it's creational. God's plan for us in the area of our sexuality in the area of marriage applies to all men and all women in all cultures through all of time. There's not five different kinds of marriages, depending on your culture, your religion, there's one. Now we live, the second thing I wanna do is I wanna point out that we live in a culture that is waging a direct assault upon the word of God and the authority of God. Where right is being called wrong and wrong is being called right. And the reason for this is because in order to justify our sin, we all do this on some level. But in order to justify our sin, man knows that he must undermine God's word. 
We can undermine God's word by saying, oh, I agree with it, but I'm not going to live it out. Or I disagree with it. Or I'm going to make laws contrary to it. But man knows in the deep recesses of his conscience that in order to have his way, he must push God out of the mix. He must push God aside. So in Genesis chapter one, I want to remind us of four basic creational truths that God has laid down for all of humanity and how our culture has waged war on every one of them for several decades now and exchanged the truth for a lie. And if this is something that interests you, that's great. You should be reacting to it. If it disinterests you, you need to become interested in it. You know why? Because the stuff we're gonna talk about is not just for pastors and Christian people in churches, but it's affecting our children, the next generation. It has implications for law, economics, politics. And you may find yourself in a position in life where you're relatively insulated from the the consequences of pushing back against the state. But I'm gonna tell you this, our culture's on a steep downward decline. And if we don't all start to push back and speak the truth, they're gonna come for you as well. They'll come for your jobs, they'll come for your children, they'll come for your houses. Because we live in a culture that has taken God's law and God's word and thrown it out the door. The good news is, is that we can have an influence. Think Roe v. Wade, just a law. And look at how many lives have been saved by the, change, by the changing of one law. So four creational truths swap for a lie. Genesis 1.26, and God said, then God said. So this is authoritatively from God. It's not some guy that made it up. It's from God. God said, let us, he's speaking in the plural of majesty there. Like the queen, I guess the king of England could say we. That's the plural of majesty because they're representing the nation. So God is not saying there's a several gods speaking on his behalf, but let us as a plural of majesty. Let us make man in our image after our likeness. So in the opening chapter of the Bible, we are told that humanity is made in the image and likeness of God. You are made in the image and likeness of God. You are not on the same level as a squirrel. You're not on the same level as a fox. You're not on the same level as a snake. There's many created things besides human beings that walk this planet. But there's something unique about God's design for humanity and that he made us in his image and likeness. We are moral beings. We are deliberative beings. We make decisions. We're not driven by instincts. We're thoughtful beings. We have a spiritual dimension to us. And our task ideally is to bear forth his image, his message into a broken world. But the culture around us says that's not true. We, we evolve from a primordial swamp. Imagine that. From the zoo to you. It used to be an amoeba or a slug. Then you became a caterpillar and on and on and on. And now here you are in all of your glory. This is the message of the world. And there's consequences to that message. There's consequences to Darwinian evolution. One of the consequences is that we are dehumanized that our value becomes arbitrary. This is the lie, your value, our value is arbitrary in a Darwinian world. So if you're disabled, 
you're disposable. If you're an inconvenient fetus, we can get rid of you. If you're old and infirmed, sign a document. We'll snuff you out. Did you know I read this week that there's more, something like 10 times more deaths in Canada right now from medical assistance in dying than there is in the left-wing liberal state of California. I mean, this MAID bill has had massive consequences. People are dying by the score. I think 3% of all deaths in Canada right now are a result of the passing of the MAID bill. And the only way a culture gets to a point where they're okay with executing the elderly or executing babies, or now there's discussions about applying the MAID bill to babies that have been born disabled, is when you deny that we're made in the image and likeness of God. The passage goes on to say, and let them have dominion. This makes the environmentalists really uncomfortable. Let them have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over the livestock and over all the earth and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. Meaning that you have dominion over the elephant and the caterpillar. That you are God's vice regent. That you have been appointed to steward his creation. You're not an owner, you're just a steward. But that is part of your responsibility as an image bearer to manage his creation. Now, of course, you can mismanage it just like you, you could mismanage someone else's property and you'll be held accountable for that. So we're not, we're not permitted to just go and waste and squander the resources of creation, but we are managers and stewards. And yet the world around us would say, no, no, humanity, we're hearing this language, humanity is a cancer to the planet. We're a cancer. Their mindset is that we serve the planet. That in a sense, the planet has dominion over us. That's, that's a lie that's increasingly being talked about. There's over 7 billion people on the planet today. Jane Goodall wants it reduced to a half a billion. So 15 out of 16 people, I guess, or 13 out of 14 people have to go. And it's based upon this idolatrous, elevation of the created order, which supposedly just evolved by chance and isn't really of any value anyway, so I guard it. But the elevation of the planet and the animals to the exclusion of humanity. Now we talked about this extensively at our theological conference recently. If you wanna hear me lecture on that, you can find that lecture at the Ezra Institute website. But for the purpose of our conversation today, I just wanna remind us, now we actually do have stewardship over the planet and human beings are different than trees and rivers and squirrels and aardvarks. And yet in our culture, there's a pushing down, a diminishment of humanity and an elevation of creation in the province of Quebec. I believe it was in 2021, they granted the status of personhood to the Magpie River it now has the legal status of personhood. A groove in the ground with water flowing out of it, flowing through it has the legal status of personhood, but until you're out of your mother's womb and hopefully healthy, you don't have that. And then in verse 27, so God created man in his own image. So he reminds us of that. In the image of God, he created him. So now we have three times, three times we're told that. God repeats himself because he doesn't want you to be able to deny it. 
And then as image bearers, listen to what he says, male and female, he created them. Male and female. The Bible's explicit on this from the beginning chapter. We are made male and female. Now, most thinking people throughout all of human history didn't even debate that point. But for some reason, the geniuses of the modern era now tell us there's like 70, 70 options to pick from. They would say that maleness and femaleness is a social construct. Well, if you don't have God, if you don't found your belief systems in an authoritative anchor like the Bible, then you can just make stuff up. You can literally create your own reality. On one hand, you can say, oh, we're all about science, but if science is inconvenient, well, it's a social construct all of a sudden. And this is where people get confused because on one hand, we're like, well, I uh, yeah, I like science, but, but this doesn't seem scientific, but they're telling me it is, and it actually diminishes the value of science, makes it less than helpful. Now, I want you to note this. Maleness and femaleness is affirmed in creation, but it's also affirmed in the Mosaic Code. It's not just a creational thing. In the Mosaic Code, God reaffirmed there's men and there's women, and they should look and act differently. This is why in Deuteronomy 22.5, a man is not permitted to dress as a woman or a woman's not permitted to dress as a man. There's a difference between the two and it should be obvious. And then the New, New Covenant scriptures in Ephesians chapter five, maleness and femaleness expressed in the marital covenant becomes a display of Christ's relationship with his church where the husband isn't, but he role plays Christ. And the wife isn't, but she role plays the church and they put the gospel on display in their marriage. And then in Romans chapter one, male female sex is presented as natural. As natural. And women, women or men, men sex is presented as unnatural. You're thinking, who is this guy? Did he just crawl out of a cave? Is he a Neanderthal? Well, it seems like it if all you're listening to is what we've been taught the last 20 years in culture, that for the last 20 years, they've been so deliberate in telling us all this stuff is make-believe. And then strangely add terms like hate speech to it. Your hate speech. Isn't that a fascinating thing? If you notice this, those that would quickly preach a message of tolerance and an inclusivity are the least tolerant and the least inclusive people I've ever met. Just as it's a word war. You say your words, I say my words, you're going to jail. You're afraid of sounds? And then they judge motives. That's hate speech. How do you know if it's not love speech? Can you, do you have some ability? I thought we all agreed, judge not lest you be judged. That's a pretty common verse quoted too by the godless. Well, to say I'm guilty of hate speech is to judge my motives because you, you don't know what my motives are. So this, this is the, the game that's being played where that which is evil is being called good and that which is good is being called evil. It's all a big game. And you gotta be on your toes because it's so incessant. And so many institutions in society have been overtaken by the educational institutions are done for. The political establishment's done for. Most of the churches are done for. Everybody's peddling this agenda. And if you hear it enough, you think to yourself, maybe I am a Neanderthal. 
And then you open God's word and you're like, whoo, I guess I'm not. This is what God says. And in fact, the interesting thing is we have thousands of years of human history on our side because people have believed this basic stuff even outside of the church since the beginning of time. And then we have this assault. Verse 28 says, and God blessed them and God said to them, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it and have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and everything that moves on the earth. In other words, get married and have babies. We're like, don't get married and don't have babies. Don't get married and don't have babies. Marriage is in part for the purpose of reproduction. It's not the exclusive purpose of marriage, but it is in part God's design. But we've been told we've been too successful, too fruitful. The world is overpopulated. When people say that, I'm like, have you ever traveled? I've traveled. I've been to Beijing, China, which is overpopulated because you got the population of Canada packed into one area. That's not a good idea. But as you're flying in, there's thousands of vacant acres. It seems like it's overpopulated. If you pack, squish everybody into one area, you have eight dogs in your house. You got too many dogs in your house. But if you have 15 acres out back and there's not even an ant on it, there's room for your dogs to roam. But we're told, no, no, no. The world's overpopulated. We're too fruitful. We need to reduce the population. We need to limit the number of children we have. And even in the Christian church, I don't want to have kids because the sky is falling. The world's falling apart. It's all a ploy. And then there's abortion. How much does it cost a woman in our country to get an abortion? This much. But you want to adopt a kid. I hope you got 50 grand laying around. So we'll make that near to impossible. Make it near to impossible to adopt the child, but we'll make it free to abort. Folks, where you spend your money betrays your value system. And in our country, we've made abortions cheap to free and having kids is incredibly expensive. Even when you want to educate them. Well, I don't want to send my kids to the woke institution. What are your options? Well, you got to homeschool or send your kids to our school and it's going to cost you a lot of money. Culture's not going to help you with that. But they'll help you if you want your kid to become woke. They're more than willing to help you with that. So the notion is, is that children are an option and better yet, a hindrance. So there's the truth for the lie. So the reason why I'm sharing this with you is I want you to see that while we call it a culture war, really what it is, is it's a spiritual war. It's a spiritual war. And into this antichrist culture, we have the enemies of God waging war against him, even going so far, they're so bold, so bold to declare Genesis chapter one in the satanically inspired Bill C4 as a myth. That's literally the language. This is a myth. In, in Canadian law, a myth, that doesn't sound like legal language. That sounds like religious language. That's an ideology. But increasingly we see the secular humanistic religion, and it, is, and it is a religion. I did a podcast on that this week saying to us, if you think that men are men and women are women, that's a myth. And if you say that, 
You're directing hate toward an identifiable group. You're putting their lives at risk. No, we actually love them. Because as we'll talk about a little bit later, so were some of us at one point. We all have sin in our lives that's been forgiven by the precious blood of the Lord Jesus Christ. Brothers and sisters, the devil is the ultimate false advertiser. He says, I'm gonna give you life and liberty and freedom and cast off the restraints of the church and God's law and God's word and forget about the gospel of Jesus Christ. You don't need to surrender yourself to Jesus to find forgiveness at the foot of the cross. But you know what he actually delivers? Disease and death. He wants you defiant, diseased. He wants you divorced or he wants you dead. That's what he wants. And yet in our foolishness, we often fail to obey God and repent of our sins and put our faith in him. And we follow the prince of darkness. And as a result, our country and our nations continue to get more and more chaotic. We have the rise of single parent homes. We have economic degradation, all sorts of disaster taking place in our culture today as we cast off the restraints of God's law. So let's get over to Hebrews chapter 13, verse four. In Hebrews chapter 13, verse four, here's what it says. Let marriage be held in honor among all and let the marriage bed be undefiled for God will judge the sexually immoral and adulterous. In other words, we are to reserve sexual activity for marriage between one man and one woman in the covenant of marriage. Malachi calls it a covenant. Now covenants can be ratified in a variety of ways. In the West, we tend to give and exchange rings as a symbol of our entrance into the covenant of marriage. We exchange vows, we make promises. And in some cultures, they may tie hands or perform other rituals to symbolize the covenant, but your marriage isn't fundamentally about a vow, it's about a covenant. And even if your marriage didn't have vows, it's still a covenant that you've taken before God and man and that has been recognized as legit. It's a covenant. And within that covenant, there are commitments that you make. And in order to undergird and support this institution, this creational institution, after all, it was the first institution. Marriage existed before the church, before nationhood, before trade guilds, before universities, before educational institutions. Marriage is the first institution. And if we're gonna support it, the first thing we need to do is to make marriage an honored institution once again. That's what we have to do. We have to make it an honored and honorable institution once again. It's the creational institution. Again, it's not strictly Christian. So you don't say to someone, well, you're not a Christian. It doesn't really matter if you're married or not. No, it's a creational institution. It is in the best interest of nations to affirm marriage. It's in the best interest of a functioning social order to affirm marriage. It's not like communion or baptism, sacraments of the Christian church. It's a creational transcultural institution. And so we do have a vested interest in speaking out against bad marriage laws. And we do have a vested interest in speaking out or instructing or encouraging even those outside of the Christian church to follow God's pattern for humanity in the area of marriage. 
It should be honored by all humans, regardless of religion. Some people have asked me before, okay, if two Muslims are married, is that a legitimate marriage? Yes, it's a legitimate marriage. Two Buddhists, yes, that's a legitimate marriage. Two atheists, yes, that's a legitimate marriage. If it's within the boundaries of God's laws, because marriage isn't distinctly Christian. But as Christians, we have special insight into the nature and purpose of marriage because we have God's manual on it right here. And we also can tie it to the gospel. We see how the husband and wife put the gospel on display and we're supposed to be good examples to others around us. If we don't preach and teach and model biblical marriage, who's gonna do that? Who's gonna do that? So let's make sure that we understand the value of it. Now in the early church, the first century, there was a little movement going on, which frankly is not very popular today. It was like a radical pro-celibacy movement. There were some that would say, marriage is a bad thing. It's better to be celibate. Now this flows out of Gnosticism. Gnosticism essentially says, Everything that's physical is bad. Food is bad. Going to the beach is bad. Sex is bad. Relationships are bad. Everything that's physical is bad. It's a dualistic worldview. And everything that's immaterial is good. So don't get married. It's it's bad, bad, bad. Well, the Bible presents celibacy in a positive light. Some are called to celibacy, 1 Corinthians 7. Paul, Paul was celibate. We're all born celibate. That's the default. We're all born single. So celibacy is not a bad thing, but into that culture, some were saying, ah, forget about marriage. Celibacy is the way to go. Celibacy for everybody. Paul, the celibate apostle says otherwise. He champions celibacy, but he also honors marriage. He honors it by using it as the template for the gospel in Ephesians chapter five. So in a like way, we need to honor marriage in a culture that dishonors it. Can we agree to that? We need to honor it in a culture that dishonors it. How do we honor marriage? Well, we speak well of it. And I like the marriage jokes too. They're fun. You know, I mentioned in the first service, my wife and I sometimes have issues and it's always her fault. It's fun. I enjoy that. Maybe the ladies in the room don't, but I enjoy it. My bros do. It's fun. It's fun to acknowledge the differences between men and women. It's fun, part of the spice of life. But we also speak well of marriage. Yes, no no marriage is perfect. We have issues, but we speak well of marriage. We encourage young people, hey, if possible, pursue it. It's a good thing. We should teach our children about it, about the realities of marriage. Someone's teaching them. Social media is teaching them. The university is teaching them. Television shows are teaching them a view of marriage. We need to teach them. And when I say teach them, I I would just say this. One of my pastoral observations is that most Christians do a pretty good job raising children that know how to dress, are relatively socially adjusted, do fairly well in school, and become conscientious tax-paying citizens. But where some Christians fall apart or fail is to actually speak about the hard truths of life to their children. 
We have people that are raised in godly, loving, caring, nurturing Christian homes. You're prepping them for marriage and they just say, yeah, our parents never talked about sex. Never came up. Oh, they fed us and clothed us and we played hockey and went to school, earned a university degree. But when it comes to marriage, frankly, I'm terrified. Like what are the steps to even get there? Well, the solution to that is speak to your children about the real life raw issues. You don't need to be crass, but it should come up in conversation. And if the world's talking about it every day, you should be talking about it at least once in a while. We need to then equip people for it. I I love our discipleship groups and I have a chance to spend a year with young men in our church and a lot of great young men in our church. And we, we, we talk about marriage. We talk about relationships. We talk about how to pursue a woman, how to treat a woman. And I would say the majority of those guys will say, I've never heard a lot of this stuff before. Many of them raised in Christian homes. So we've had some success, by the way, as a result of this. My schedule's pretty booked when it comes to weddings. It's a good thing. But if we all took seriously the task of equipping people for marriage, talk about how to pursue the opposite sex, the boundaries, the things you need to watch for, the warnings, the proactive steps, we bless the next generation. I wasn't really taught that. I was raised in a broken home. I I know the pain of divorce upon my life as a child. I get it. But I don't want to pass the pain on to my children. I want to bless them and position them as best as I can for success. We need to defend marriage. We need to pursue it. We shouldn't abandon our marriages. You know, you might've married someone and you're like, what in the world was I thinking? Well, you made the decision, you made the covenant and there's hope and healing for both of you at the foot of the cross. There's resources. Make the most of it. Don't abandon it. And then we also honor marriage by putting boundaries in place. So I have to pastor men and women in our church. You're not going to catch me texting jokey conversation back and forth to any woman besides my wife or daughters. That's a boundary for me. You're not going to catch me driving down EC row with an unrelated female in the front seat of the car. That's a boundary. You're not going to catch me having affairs with other women. My sexual expression is reserved for my wife and myself because I'm a human too. And I could stumble or I may not stumble just optically. It looks really bad. And my, my witness drops. So having good boundaries in place, there's things you do and things you don't do. It protects the sanctity of your sexuality and your marriage. You know, one of the things Susie and I like to do is every once in a while, we'll watch like a mini series. And I, I like the detective ones or something connected to history, but there's a show called Chicago PD. There's a few little scenes in it, but for the most part, it's not bad. But one of the things that I noticed early on is that there is not one single married actor portrayed in the show that I can think of. Every detective, every chief, every lieutenant, everybody's single. 
Everybody. And this is pretty common, actually, if you watch uh, tel- television series. You got these people, they're you know, large and in charge. They got their jobs. They know how to do it well. They're making money. They're living the high life. None of them are married. They might be sleeping around and involving a few affairs here and there, but those don't, those don't last. Well, if you think about that, what does, how does that subtly communicate the value of marriage into a culture like ours? It's like, hey, the young people, I, I don't want to get married. I want to be like Frank Voigt or Hank Voigt from Chicago PD. I want to be a career man. I want to be a career woman. And if, we have, if they have a kid, you know, you, they, they make a cameo appearance and you never see the kid again in the miniseries. Right? So over time, you create a culture where it's like, hey, being, being single, spending your money, going out to the bar after work, that, that's the life that I'm looking for. Brothers and sisters, it affects people's mindset and view. Whereas if, if we did an even better job in honoring marriage, speaking well of it and not being ashamed of it and in keeping our marriages together, this would bless the Lord and the world. Secondly, we're called to keep the marriage bed pure, which is a euphemism for sexual intercourse. We all are sexual beings. We're born that way. And when you come to sexual maturity, you become aware of your own sexuality. Maybe you remember that. Suddenly it's like, oh, girls are kind of cute. I thought they were yucky before this. You become aware of your sexuality. And then at some point your body matures and you are looking for ways to express your sexuality. And there's, there's nothing wrong with that desire. This isn't Victorian England. God has created us as sexual beings. We're not ashamed to talk about that. We're not, we're not ashamed to acknowledge that. And along the way, there's times when we all transgress. I mean, unless you're like the oddball in the room, all of us transgress in the area of sexuality. We have lustful thoughts. You may be guilty of whatever, adultery, fornication, whatever it might be. But that shouldn't stop us from confessing and then pursuing God's best for us. It, our sexuality can be and should be pure. And even if you come from a culture where maybe your parents didn't talk about this stuff, it's dirty. I remember teaching a marriage course years ago and after a class or two, this couple came up and they're like, yeah, we don't talk about this. We're not coming back. Well, I know what you're doing when you go home. (laughs) So why not talk about it and try to understand it? We're all sexual beings. It's not shameful or something that's dirty. Physical union in marriage is called pure. That's the biblical word. And it should be kept that way. It's reserved for a husband and a wife in the covenant of marriage. That's where the best sex takes place because it has that covenantal aspect to it. It's based on trust and it's shameless and God honors it. So what what would be impure? Well, the Bible lists several sexual sins. You can just write some of these down. We can't preach on every subject today, but fornication. 1 Corinthians 7, 2. So we're not supposed to be having sex before marriage. Uh, bestiality, Exodus twenty two nineteen. That's written a long time ago, but apparently it was an issue. 
And don't kid yourself, there's been a softening of acceptance toward that in our own culture. Homosexuality, Romans 1, 26 to 27. Adultery, Matthew 5, 19. And then lust or adultery of the mind, that's forbidden. Matthew 5, 28. By the way, sex starts in the mind. So you have to learn to control your mind. Uh, sexual immorality, which is the, the word pornonia, it's a catch-all term in Matthew 5, uh, 19. That's the first part of the word pornography, what we get the word pornography from. So it would include that, illicit images or illicit writings. Now here's one that's not talked about very often. 1 Corinthians 7, 5, celibacy in marriage. That's also a sexual sin. To deprive your spouse without mutual consent of sexual intercourse for extended periods of time is a sin in the mind of God. Now, these are various sins that are listed in scripture, but let's suppose for a moment, of course, this wouldn't be true of anybody here, but let's suppose for a moment that we were actually attracted to these things. But of course, nobody in church would be, right? Like nobody here has ever had a lustful thought, I assume, or fornicated or had an adulterous relationship or, no, 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 not, not, not us. Okay, let's be real. Yeah, us. We all are yet not fully sanctified and, the, and we're constantly inundated with images and opportunities and it is a temptation and frankly, a besetting sin for many, many Christians in the church. Pornography is a huge issue. Adulterous relationships, jumping from spouse to spouse. These are huge issues, even among people who claim to know the Lord. And if not issues, then certainly temptations. So what if these things are attractive? Like what if it's like, well, I don't want to do it, but I, I, I kind of do. I know I shouldn't, but I kind of like it. What do I do? Well, it starts with, again, the mind, learning to see sin the way God sees it. Because you and I have been taught from the devil himself, from the flesh and from those around us, a positive view of sexual sin. It's constantly highlighted as positive. So we have to change our mindset and realize that it's actually destructive. You remind yourself, it's destructive, it's destructive. It's false advertising. I know it feels good, but it's, it's gonna destroy me. It's gonna actually reduce my sexual capacity. It's going to reduce my relationships. Folks, I can tell you as a pastor, and you can study this, there's, there's research articles coming out, that the more people view pornography, the more their sexual pleasure drops. You have young people getting married who can barely have sex because they're worn out sexually. They've viewed so much pornography, they, they just can't find satisfaction with an actual real person. It's a fact. And this is why the blue pill is so popular because people have worn themselves out sexually and they've bought into the lie of the world. You know, the more sex you can have, the more you can fool around, the more people you can try out before marriage, the better it's gonna be. No, it will destroy you. Over time, your capacity will be reduced. And so you need to see it as, the, as God sees it. It's dehumanizing. It literally turns other people into pieces of meat. 
You start to objectify people. You can't even have a relationship with people anymore without thinking about sex. It's unholy and it's destructive, not to mention just dishonors God and his disobedience to God. So you have to change your way of thinking. Here's a, a lower level example. Remember when you were a kid and candy just tasted awesome? Like any candy. Any candy, no matter how trashy, just tasted great. Because you had like one taste bud. Sweet, right? Well, if you just kept eating candy, candy, because it tastes good, tastes good, tastes good, you probably wouldn't be here today. Because at some point in time, you got to realize, you know what? Junk food is slowly poisoning my body. So I have to, I have to start cutting it out. And you cut it out, you cut it out. And you know what happens over time? You're like, actually, wheat bread tastes pretty good. Like real food, real home-baked food actually tastes good. And over time, it's like, it actually tastes better. Who would have thought than junk food? So not only are, do you stop slowly poisoning yourself, but you, you then go back and you have like a candy out of your, your, you know, your, your kid's Christmas candy. You're like, oh, how did I possibly ever like that? That's disgusting because you developed a different taste. You no longer cry, crave that which is fake and artificial and poisonous. You value that which is healthy and good. And your sexuality can be used to poison you or to bless you. And, but you have to develop a different taste bud, so to speak. And once you've made the switch, once you've walked away from sexual immorality and you've embraced God's plan, you're like, this is way better. This is way better. But folks, if you spent 50 years over here, it's not going to take three weeks to get here. Like it takes a while. I was talking to a sex addict about a year ago. He was going on about all his escapades. I don't want to hear this stuff. I get it. But in the course of conversation, he said to me, well, you know, there's no way you and your wife have better sex than all the people I've slept with, men and women both. I said, dude, we don't need to compare notes. I know we have better sex than you do. Times 10. And that's not a Mr. Studmuffin comment. That's a comment that acknowledges that sex is more than the act. It's under God. It's a spiritual union. It's in a covenant. It's for life. That's how God's designed it. So if you're following God's plan, of course it's going to be better than if you're following the plan of the world. So why not preach that message? Tell your kids that. Portray human sexuality in a positive way and you will bless yourself and bless others. But if you keep allowing little bits of sexual immorality in, you are going to keep your appetite for it alive. So you have to go cold turkey on sexual immorality. And here's the reality. You either learn to be disciplined or you will be disciplined. Because the text goes on to say that God judges sexual sin. God will judge the sexually immoral and adulterous. Now, not those that have repented of it, like us, hopefully. But God will judge those that continue in sin. Let me take you over to 1 Corinthians chapter 6. Because I don't want us to fall into the trap of forgetting where we came from, forgetting what we're capable of, or miscommunicating to the world that we're all squeaky clean in this area. 
Because we're not here today saying, you know what? Everybody out there is a rank pagan and we got it all together. You know, we're the spiritually elite. We don't sin. It's not true. Here's what it says in 1 Corinthians chapter 6, verse 9. Or do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived. Neither the sexually immoral, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor men who practice homosexuality, nor thieves, nor the greedy, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. Okay, well, we're down with that. But listen to the next statement. And such were some of you. Some of us have done these things. So are we outside of the kingdom of God? Is it impossible for us to inherit the kingdom of God? If you are a swindler, a homosexual, a drunkard, a thief, an adulterer, etc. If that were true, we're all doomed. And if for some reason you skipped this particular list, this isn't the exclusive list of every sin you can commit in the scripture. Listen to what it says. But such were some of you, but you were washed, you were sanctified, you were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the spirit of our God. So the ultimate solution to sexual immorality is salvation. This is why we preach conversion, that a person must acknowledge their sin and put their faith exclusively in Jesus Christ and in Jesus Christ alone. Be washed in the precious blood of the Lord Jesus Christ, which he shed for us. And in that relationship, there is freedom and liberty to do righteousness and to cast off the deeds of darkness. The modern listener hears stuff like this and they're like, wow, talk about a judgmental crew. Well, I still would say you're a little more judgmental than we are. But what we're actually doing when we talk about judgment is we're just telling you what God has said. This isn't archaic or prudish. This is just what God says. God says he's gonna judge the sexually immoral or adulterers. So wouldn't we be remiss not to tell someone that? To let them think that, oh, it's cool. You do whatever you want. You know, radical freedom, radical autonomy, do, do, do whatever you want. Have, it's, it's too bad that many people have lived so long in the darkness and so long in their impurity that they think sexual immorality is the best that life has to offer. Many people live their entire lives that way. Well, this is normal. Marriage number eight, sex partner number 15, porn site number 1001. This is the best life has to offer. If, you, if you're born in a sewer, and you live your entire life in a sewer, you're probably not even, you don't even know what fresh air smells like. But if you've lived in the fresh air and you go back into a sewer, you know what a sewer smells like. And unfortunately, a lot of people have spent their entire lives in a sewer and we're trying to lift the manhole and call them out to breathe the fresh air of God's grace and mercy and plan for their lives. The world's plan brings disease, financial hardship, child support, alimony, broken relationships, crummy relationships with your kids, distrust between you and your sex partners, embarrassment and shame, addiction and death. That's the paycheck. 
The wages of sin is death. Brothers and sisters, don't kid yourself. Satan is still peddling the exact same recycled lie. He's so unoriginal. The same recycled lie he peddled in Eden. Hey, um, I know you get all this freedom and liberty, but see that tree over there? You should go eat eat of it. God says we can't. Oh, no, no, no. God knows that when you eat of it, you'll be like God knowing good and evil. In other words, what lie did the serpent plant? God is not benevolent. God is not good. God does not have your best interests in mind. He is a cosmic killjoy. He despises you. He's trying to rob you of pleasure. He's trying to rob you of opportunity. He's a spiteful God. You need to get ahead of him. You need to exercise your autonomy. You need to get ahead of God. That's the lie. And it's the same root to every sin that human beings have ever committed since. Every sin, you trace it back as a downplaying or denial of the goodness of God. And this drives us to disobedience, but God is reminding us, I am loving, I am merciful. My plan is best, pursue it and you will be blessed. But if you do not, I will in my holiness judge you. Same as he did in Sodom. Look what it says in Jude 1.7. Just as Sodom and Gomorrah and the surrounding cities, which likewise indulged in sexual immorality and pursued unnatural desire, serve as an example by undergoing a punishment of eternal fire. Well, I think that's motivation to walk from it and to pursue that which is righteous. So brothers and sisters, for the benefit of your neighbor and yourself, for the blessing of future generations, for the stability of our marriages and our families and for the glory of God, let's denounce the deeds of darkness. Let's repent of our own and let's walk as children of light that God might be glorified and we might live the abundant life that God has designed for us to live. Let me lead you in prayer. I would ask that you pray as well. Church is in a spectator sport. And if there's areas of your life where you have failed to have victory, confess those to the Lord. And if the Lord has given you victory, thank the Lord for that. And then commit to being an ambassador for Christ in the area of biblical sexuality.